Welcome to this edition of Church Grammar. On today's episode, I play a conversation I had with Glenn Butner back at ETS in November. Glenn teaches at Sterling College. We talk about his new book on the obedience of the Son and his arguments against the eternal subordination of the Son. We talk about Trinitarian hermeneutics and kind of how you can get to different conclusions on the submission of the Son based on hermeneutics. This is definitely one of those khakis on fire sort of episodes because this is a reflection really on the Trinity debate, which is one of the more controversial, one of the more kind of involved debates that we have had in evangelicalism in quite some time. It didn't just exist online on blogs and Twitter, as some people have tried to posit. It's really uh, changed publishing. It's changed some scholars' views on what they think about the Trinity in different ways, even scholars who are Trinity scholars and who have thought a lot about it. This debate still kind of clarified some things for them, definitely cleared, clarified things for seminarians and PhD students like myself who had thought about some of these things and had heard these arguments but really got to see the best of both sides, really got to see a lot of wrestling and thinking through that in public. It was definitely one of the good outcomes of social media and blogs that we have seen in academia and theological circles in quite some time, maybe forever. It's not that long that we've had blogs and the internet, so it's not like it's a uh, hundred years worth of ever, but in the last you know 10 years where this has really been popular, this might've been the best conversation that we've had. And so I talked with Glenn about that. He actually published an article in the Journal for Evangelical Theological Society, had submitted it before the debate started, and it came out kind of during the debate, almost prophetically, almost um, surprisingly. He didn't really see it coming, wasn't trying to contribute to the debate. But uh, as I tell him in the conversation, I really believe it was probably the best, if not one of the best articles, academic articles that came out during that time. So we have that conversation, and I hope you will enjoy that. This episode was sponsored by BNH Academic, bhacademic.com, to see their latest releases in their catalog. Christian Standard Bible at csbible.com. Find out more about this English translation that seeks to be faithful to the original languages without sacrificing clarity. Here's my hotel room at ETS conversation with Glenn Butner. But first, no big deal. So I am here in my hotel room in ETS in Denver with Glenn Butner. Glenn, we uh, just had dinner together, which was delicious. It was a Wonderful. good start. And so we are going to talk a little bit about uh, your book. So you just had a book come out with Pickwick called The Son Who Learned Obedience, A Theological Case Against the Eternal Submission of the Son. So uh, if anybody knows anything about this, they know that this is definitely a khakis on fire debate kind of uh, episode, kind of edition of, of church grammar. So we're just going to talk through sort of Glenn's book and the debate that kind of launched this book, kind of launched into why he wrote this book, and uh, talk about the debate and the two sides of the debate, just sort of work through it a little bit. Uh, the goal is not to bash the other side of your book, but uh, obviously just to make the case for why you wrote your book and, and why you think it's important and why we should care about it. So once you give sort of a, just a simple, as simple as you can summary of the Trinity debate of 2016, uh, which sort of is, is kind of what led to a lot of this and a lot of publishing that people are going to see for the next couple of years. Yeah, great. I can do that. And uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, my first ever podcast, so hopefully I won't be too awkward. Um, <laughs> Not any more awkward than you are normally, yeah, right? Yeah, there we go. So uh, the context 
I'd actually written a, an article on this right before this debate in 2016 broke out. Yeah, you were kind of a um, prophet on this thing. So, yeah. right place at the right time. And essentially, what happened is there had been a long academic debate um, between some different evangelicals about um, whether or not we should say that the Son and the Spirit eternally submit to the Father, particularly the Son. Um, and then further, whether that submission relationship in the Trinity uh, bore any significance for gender roles uh, in a marriage context. So the majority who would say that the son did eternally submit to the father um, typically would argue that that had implications for gender roles and that that was the sort of eternal basis for complementarianism, um, that the uh, sort of image of God in man and woman was a reflection of that subordination or submission with father and son. Um, on the other hand, you had uh, a group that argued that no, it's not proper to think about um, the son eternally submitting for a variety of reasons. And traditionally, at least, they had been more egalitarian and that was more coincidental. Most of the time, folks uh, on that side would not say that the Trinity directly relates to gender roles, though there were some exceptions. And so in 2016, this debate came out uh, and what ends up happening is most of the folks on the side that say the son does submit claim that they have the Bible backing them up. Um, and at times there are accusations that the other side is just corrupted by feminism. And then those who say there's not eternal submission in the Trinity so that the son for all eternity didn't submit to the father tend to say that they have the tradition of the church on their side and that their opponents are Arians. Um, so deviating from an important early council at Nicaea. And so it got heated pretty quickly. Arianism is not a very nice word to level at somebody else <laughs> right. uh, in a theological context. Um, and in some circles, uh, calling someone a feminist sort of pollutes the well and yeah. uh, scares people away. So uh, pants on fire, definitely. <laughs> the, those were sort of the, the stereotypes. And then once the debate really got going, it turns out that a significant amount of, you know, quote unquote, complementarian, conservative evangelicals didn't agree with the eternal submission of the son. Uh, again, they were leaning on tradition and other things. And it turned out that there were some egalitarians who were on both sides, but typically on the non-subordination side. So, so that debate, yeah, I mean, it was, it was, we were talking on the, on the way over here just about how important that debate was. I think it's, it, it can be almost undersold as sort of this little skirmish that happened online. But in reality, you had all these authors and all these scholars and Trinitarian theologians who for years said certain things about Jesus being subordinate to the Father, who said it not thinking eternal functional subordination or, or you know, what, what it became, what Grudemann Ware called it, uh, eternal relations of authority and submission, which is sort of a, a little bit of a softened version of EFS, who, you know, they, they basically came out and said, well, I, I need to make sure that I'm using my language right because I don't want to be falling into this side of the debate or whatever. And so it was really important because I think not only did a lot of people clarify where they were, or some people for the first time had never even thought about it. And for the first time, we're like, oh, okay, I should probably think about what I think about that, you know? Uh, and then all of a sudden, you've got your book published, and there are articles published, and uh, BH Academic just did a book on Trinitarian uh, Method, which has, you know, Bruce Ware's in it, Matt Emerson and Luke Stamps, and Ma Malcolm Yarnell have three chapters. Really got into not just what do you think about the, the subordination of the son, but it got into a whole host of things about theological method and how you even approach the Bible. So can you maybe talk a little bit about what is the method side of it? So, so some of these people are starting at just different presuppositions altogether when it comes to hermeneutics and theological method and how they incorporate the tradition, how they incorporate biblical texts. Do you have any thoughts on sort of how that all 
uh, played out and how that played a part in it? Sure. The standard narrative of, you know, feminists versus Aryans or Bible versus tradition really started to break down in 2016. And so, you know, it's really helpful that you point to the fact that a number of complementarians start coming out and saying, mm-hmm. well, well, this isn't actually the doctrine of the Trinity we believe. We don't believe that the Son eternally submits to the Father. And so those entrenched camps started to sort of break down. And I, I think you're right that one of the main reasons is um, a methodological reason. Um, so, um, Partly, I think what we can learn from 2016 in terms of method is that um, sort of argumentation by labeling isn't necessarily very helpful. Yeah. Um, I would think actually the labels used by both sides aren't uh, particularly accurate. Um, so, you know, the accusation of feminism being a main source for claiming that the son doesn't submit to the father entails that somehow your uh, culturally imposed ideas of gender are driving your theology without recognizing that there were careful historical and exegetical arguments being made. And in that accusation of Arianism, one main argument I make in my book is, I don't think that's a historically accurate claim. Um, Arianism was a very different beast than whatever's going on with eternal submission. Yeah, Bruce Ware even, and Grudem and some of them were saying, look, we're not talking about division in the essence, or that Jesus is not the same essence or the same type of substance, which is what Arians did. So that's, yeah, that's, I'm glad you pointed that out. Yeah, and so we, I kind of want to move beyond that impasse, um, and really, the methodological question can be really helpful. And I see two things on a method level that are really important to consider. Um, the first is careful historical analysis uh, connected with a doctrinal analysis. So, a lot of times the debate had the tendency to take the form of finding a quotation from a church father that yeah. seemed to support eternal submission or to deny it. And say, oh well, Athanasius is on my side. Oh well, well Hodge is on my side, or you know, whatever the case may be. Um, I think it's more appropriate to say, what's the big picture of what this group of theologians around the C- Council of Nicaea were trying to argue? Each of them had their different flavors and versions of it, but uh, what arguments were consistent across the board? Uh, what arguments were particularly important in their historical context in combating their opponents? Um, and what arguments um, were made? Um, with great frequency and central to each author's thought. And when we begin to do that survey around this Council of Nicaea, one of the main things we see is the idea of inseparable operations, that all actions that God takes toward the created world um, are jointly actions of Father, Son, and Spirit together because uh, the divine nature or essence is actually the source of those actions. And if that's true, then systematically we can say if we're assuming that act Um, and acts of will are proper to the nature, that's going to have implications on Christology. Because when we think about Christ, we say uh, he has two natures in one person. So he has a divine nature and a human nature, but not a human person. If he has a human will, um, if we want him to have a human will, which I certainly think we do, in which the Third Council of Constantinople agrees, um, then we have to say will is proper to his human nature, because there's no human person there. Um, when it comes to the doctrine of the atonement. Um, questions about submission and obedience and fulfilling the law are huge yeah. in thinking about how Christ paid for our sins on the cross. And if you carefully sort of flesh out all of those connections, um, it becomes clear that changing the idea of will from nature to person um, causes all sorts of problems across systematic theology that aren't the problems of Arianism, but that are nevertheless very serious. Um, but as far as I can tell, I can't conceive of a way that we could talk about submission um, between father and son without somehow linking will 
uh, with that level of person in the Trinity. So three persons, one being. Um, that's a shift from the pro-Nicene view of will is proper to the being uh, to this view that will is proper to the persons. And there are huge implications there uh, that, frankly, I don't think had been explored enough, uh, in, at least until that 2016 debate when they started to come out a little bit more. Yeah, so basically if, if, if you want to argue that Jesus is eternally submissive or subordinate or whatever, whatever word you want to use, you're, you're starting to play with the idea, that is there, are there two wills, competing wills, different wills, whatever, within the Godhead itself? where in some sense, God is at odds with himself. Correct. So a simple English meaning for submit, you know, if I, or if you give me directions on the podcast, okay, Glenn, I want you to lean in so we can hear you more. Um, and I submit to your will and do that. Um, then I have one will, you have another, you give a command, I obey. So there are two different acts. This happens in time. Um, and I submit if I do what you want. Um, if we're saying the son eternally submits to the father, we seem to be saying that there are two different wills, that there's this deliberative process in time or something like that. And because there's not plurality in the divine being, there's one divine being, three divine persons, we're committing to say will must be proper to the persons. Mm -hmm. um, and that basic claim, you know, what is a person in the Trinity, spills out into lots of other areas. Okay, so uh, the great Baptist theologian James Leo Garrett said that if you want to debate somebody, you have to be able to first articulate their position in a way that they would say, yes, I believe that, before you're prepared to debate them. So you you ultimately disagree with the eternal relations of authority and submission or the eternal functional subordination view. So give people who are listening who don't know that side of it, give give them your fair shake. Here, here is the, the kind, optimistic, pro view. If I'm going to take that view, why would I take that view? What are the good reasons for taking that view? Okay. So actually, I think behind all of this, there's really a noble impulse. So Bruce Ware's book on the Trinity, I think it's just called Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. He's actually trying to take a very difficult doctrine um, grounded in scriptural teaching uh, and present it in a way that's beneficial for your regular person in the church pew. And that's a very noble goal. And there are a number of things in that book that are commendable in that respect. Um, and so using that method, he finds a number of different scriptural texts um, that seem to suggest a submission of the Son in eternity past. Um, so a favorite one of Ware and of Grudem and of others is saying, look, the Father sends the Son. That seems to suggest a level of submission. Um, and then there seems to be a scriptural case, according to Ware and Grudem, for a submission in eternity future. Uh, so looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where we see the image of one day death will be defeated, and when all things are subjected and all of Christ's enemies are defeated, he will then um, be subjected himself to the Father. So that Greek word there, um, hupotasso, um, is the word that could be translated submit, um, and it's applied to Christ um, at the end of history. Uh, so the exegetical argument often is, well, look, here we see before the incarnation uh, a form of submission, and here we see after the incarnation, as you know, the, the work of the incarnation is completed, um, we see submission. And so it seems like just a straightforward scriptural teaching that then has the practical implication of, look, there can be submission in the Godhead and yet still equality of nature, um, which is why this is one reason why this is different from Arianism. Um, but you can say the Son eternally submits to the Father and yet they are equally all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good. They're equally God. Um, so practically, we could say there might be different roles for men and women, um, but 
um, they still have a fundamental equality. So that's sort of how the argument gets started. And I don't know how much you want. I could give more, but the, yeah, that's good. the goal is to be faithful to scripture and practical for the church. Okay. So let's talk about your book a little bit then, uh, The Son Who Learned Obedience. So talk about the title obviously says a lot about what you're, what you're trying to say. So give sort of a thesis of, of this book and what you're trying to argue and why you think this is sort of the way we should be going theologically. So ironically, um, this, the son who learned obedience comes from the book of Hebrews. Um, I don't actually do an extended treatment of Hebrews in the book. Uh, it really mostly comes up in the conclusion. Just like a systematic theologian. Yeah, talk about the Bible, but not actually engage yeah, it. Yeah. There you go. Exactly. Um, <laughs> Who needs the Bible when you have Aquinas, right? That's right. So hopefully you'll cut that later on when we edit. <laughs> we, will, we will. Yeah, I promise we'll edit that out. Yeah. Okay. So the idea is when we think about the obedience of the son, we need to carefully think about what it is that the son is doing when he's obeying. Um, so no side disputes that the son obeyed in his human form. I mean, that's clear scripture. We see it in a number of different places. Um, the thing, though, is... The Bible, the, the human authors of the Bible at least, aren't trying to give us a detailed systematic theology of the Trinity or a detailed explanation of how Jesus is human and divine. Um, they're concerned with a much more central task of explaining to us the gospel and presenting to us who God is. Um, so what systematic theologians have to do is say, um, what must be true or what theory makes sense of the big picture of the Bible? Um, so the basic thesis of the book is the big picture of the Bible makes the most sense if we say um, will and submission are proper to nature. So Christ submits in his human nature in the incarnation, um, but it's not possible for the son to eternally submit to the father because they have the numerically identical um, will. Um, now, you can't really make this case by saying, oh, we'll just look at 1 Corinthians 16, and that clarifies what's going on. So what I try and do is go through some of these proof texts and show um, proof texts for eternal submission and show, well, that's not necessarily what the text means, and then show there are a lot of other biblical patterns um, explaining Christology or explaining the doctrine of God um, that would lead us to believe certain theological truths that don't make sense if we said will is a property of person. So there's sort of a big indirect scriptural case against eternal submission, um, while simultaneously, I think the direct case in 1 Corinthians 15, for example, doesn't really work. Okay, so let's talk through some of your some of your chapters here, just sort of how you build your argument and where you go with it. So uh, chapter one, you have common objections to inseparable, inseparable operations. That is, you know, it's funny, we sat in a, we both sat in the same session earlier on eternal procession of the spirit, and as soon as Greg Allison, his paper was on eternal, uh, inseparable operations, or at least that was a big part of it in eternal relations of origin and all that kind of stuff. I mean, immediately hands go up and they start asking questions and they're trying to kind of poke holes in it or, or just saying, I don't know, this doesn't make sense of the biblical text. I don't know what to do with this. How is it just that the father, son, and the Holy spirit all have one will if they're both, if they're doing different things economically, et cetera. So kind of walk through that. What are, what are the common objections to it? And how do you answer those objections? Because inseparable operations is, is one of the core kind of classical Christian Trinitarianism arguments. I mean, that's one of the, the key portions of, of classic Trinitarianism. Definitely. Um, so I actually start uh, with chapter one and sort of set up and explain why inseparable operations is a thing and then spin off into excursus one. So I sort of tripped you there up in my table <laughs> of contents with one of those lame academic words. Love it. Looking at those objections. So oh, let me give right. you, yeah, that was my fault. Let me give you the context a little bit and then 
uh, we'll deal with the objections. But um, the context is, so Lewis Ayers, a major uh, historian of the Nicene debates and the following um, pro-Nicene theology, so the theology of folks who affirm the Council of Nicaea. By the way, did he invent it. the pro-Nicene label? I feel like I never saw it before him. I don't know if anybody said it before him, but that pro-Nicene label, I feel like that's an Ayers thing. I put you on the spot on that, but yeah, I, don't, yeah. I don't know if that's um, the answer or not. It might be because part of what he's arguing is that, you know, Arianism isn't um, like a, a single thing. Yeah. And so he says, we shouldn't say Arian and Nicene. We should say non-Nicene, anti-Nicene, and pro-Nicene. Yeah. So I don't know if anybody did it beforehand, I'm but trying he, to think. he certainly had the impact. The, uh, the anti-Nicene Fathers series, is the other one called pro It's not called pro-Nicene. No, so, so yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so anyway. Okay. Go on. <laughs> Tangents are great. Yeah. <laughs> um, so somebody who holds to the Council of Nicaea, they affirm obviously the homoousios, the idea that Father, Son, and Spirit are the same nature, the same essence, the same being. Those terms are roughly uh, synonymous, though there are some subtle differences. Um, they affirm the eternal generation of the Son, that's central to their theology. Um, but they also affirm this idea of inseparable operations, which basically says that any divine act um, toward creation comes from this single, divine essence or being or nature that the three persons share. And so it is proper to all of them. Um, and this is partly a philosophical argument because um, the philosophical understanding in this time period of what a nature is or what a being is, is that which determines the acts that we can do. So um, if you have a human nature, you can be on a podcast. Uh, if you have the nature of a hamburger, you can't be. Um, the Te nature, technically speaking, I could have a hamburger here, but it wouldn't be a, a beneficial has, at all. He has three. Um, <laughs> so a nature determines the acts possible to a thing. Um, so things that have the same type of nature can do the same types of acts. Things that have an identical nature do identical acts. So some people worry about inseparable operations. They say, well, that's a lot of philosophy. Where's the Bible? And so one thing I try and do in my chapter is point to the main proof text for this um, in the pro-Nicene um, theology of folks like Augustine, uh, Athanasius, Hilary, um, and that is John chapter five, where Jesus heals someone on the Sabbath, and um, you know a number of religious leaders come to him and they say, "Well, you can't do this. You're not supposed to heal on the Sabbath." Jesus's response is, "Well, my Father is working, and so am I." Um, and John five says that um, people are enraged because Jesus seems to be making himself equal with God. Now, of course, this is where Jesus could easily clear things up if he wanted and say, I'm not God, I'm not God. But he actually raises the stakes in John 5, 19 and says, um, in effect, um, whatever, or he says, I can do nothing apart from what my father does, but whatever my father does, I do likewise. Um, and so the Nicene or pro-Nicene theologians focus on two things, whatever the father does, I do which says that there's nothing the Father does that the Son doesn't also do. Um, and second of all, likewise. So there's still a personal distinction between them as they're doing this shared common act. Um, and eventually this is expressed as any divine act begins with the Father, proceeds through the Son, and is completed in the Holy Spirit. Um, the second exegetical strategy of, of this time period is looking at patterns across the Bible. Um, so we typically think of the Holy Spirit, for example, as the one who sanctifies. And yet, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, verse 30, I believe, um, we hear that Christ himself is our sanctification. Um, we, we hear about the Father who sanctifies, uh, or think of creation. Often we associate the Father with the Creator, 
And yet Genesis 1-2, there's the Spirit hovering over the waters. Or John 1 or Colossians 1, we hear that all things were made through Christ. He's the image of the invisible God, etc. Yeah. So um, all of these patterns that show characteristic actions we might typically associate with one person, oftentimes that breaks down and in other passages you see other persons being involved. So um, this idea of inseparable operations is central to the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, but a number of those who upheld the eternal submission of the Son did object to this doctrine and at times even openly reject it. Um, so that, that's an important deal. That's a deviation from um, early Trinitarian thought, but it's not the same deviation as we would see in something like Arianism. Yeah. Why is it a big deal for them to, for that side, to ha do something that's kind of novel like that? What's the, what are kind of the implications not even just practically, but just even theologically, what are the implications? I mean, we've talked about it a little bit, but why, I mean, somebody could be listening to this going, okay, you know, big deal. Like you don't have inseparable operations anymore. Eternal generation, give or take that kind of idea. What do you, what do you say to that? Why, why is that important? Sure. I think that's really where it's helpful to move from, move away from the doctrine of the Trinity for a minute, because the Trinity, it's extremely important, but it can also seem really abstract. Um, so, um, this really hits Pater when you think about how it affects Christology. If you say there's not inseparable operations, but there's only one single divine being, actions must be proper to the different persons. Um, so the person of the Son acts and the person of the Father acts. Well, translate that into Christology at the Council of Chalcedon, it says that in Christ there is a divine person and a divine nature and a human nature, but no human person. Um, here suddenly it gets to be very practical. Um, so uh, Gregory of Nazianzus, uh, a pro-Nicene theologian, will say, whatever Jesus didn't assume, he didn't heal. The logic there being, what is my sanctification? Well, the Holy Spirit transforming my human nature to be like Christ's human nature. Well, if Christ doesn't have a human will, obviously one of the big problems of my sin nature is I have a sinful will. Right. What is it transforming my nature into? Suddenly it's very practical. Um, so uh, traditional Christology would say we have to have a human will, which means will has to be proper to nature. Um, we have to have a human mind, which means mind needs to be proper to nature. And if that's the case, there's only one will in the Trinity and it doesn't really make sense to talk about eternal submission. You know, some people would ask me, why does this really matter, generally speaking? Why does this matter for, you know, for your average pastor when he's preaching? Why does it matter for people in the pew? And one of the things that just really stuck out to me that I had a hard time with letting go of was, was the fact that Jesus learned obedience, that he became something that he wasn't in the sense that he became the second Adam. He became, um, you know, Fli Philippians 2, just that kind of classic him not seeing equality with God to be grasped or exploited or whatever words you want to use there. And just sort of how that's part of him becoming a man, a true fully human person is him learning obedience, him, le him learning something that he hasn't learned before. So is that sort of what you're getting at at this? Or is that, is there more to it than that? What's kind of your, what's, what's the big crux behind the son who learned obedience and how that kind of theologically and practically really works out? Um, so certainly it's, it's significant that Jesus learned obedience and took on humanity so that he could begin to obey. Um, and partly that's significant because that's the basis of salvation. Um, so not only sanctification, but when we think about how the cross works, um, traditional explanations of satisfaction theory, so from Anselm of Canterbury, would say um, 
that Jesus offered a human obedience um, and then a, a sacrifice to God on the cross by obeying God's will um, in human form, even though he knew that obedience to the Father would eventually lead you know, the Roman authorities and the Jewish authorities to get him killed. So the obedience itself is a sacrifice, um, part of the sacrifice. The obedience itself sort of inevitably results in yeah. the crucifixion and yeah, the sacrifice. Um, and why the sacrifice is good news for us is, um, to use terminology usually associated with Anselm, it's a, a supererogatory gift, a gift yeah. above and beyond what is required. Um, well, the dynamics of obedience, you know, divine command theory, um, you know, in the realm of ethics, if God commands you to do something, you have a moral obligation to do it. Um, so you have to obey for your own sake or else you would rightly deserve judgment. Um, well, Christ, according to Anselm, didn't owe the father obedience, which is why it's a whole big deal um, that he was willing to obey even to the point of death and giving this great gift to the father. Well, if the father had eternally commanded the son and said, you know, son, go down there and die on the cross, suddenly the son is obligated to obey the father um, for his own sake. And then what he does is exactly what he would be obligated to do. It's no payment above and beyond what's expected. And so the logic of why we benefit from that starts to fall apart. So um, the fact that the son, son learned obedience, as historical figures like Anselm would explain it, um, is a, a great piece of news because um, it makes the logic of the cross possible. And not just for Anselm, the same basic idea is carried on, and I demonstrate in the book in folks like Calvin, uh, John Owen. Um, and here's the other path that's interesting. It's continued in folks like Bruce Ware and Wayne Grudem. Um, when they explain the cross, they affirm these things. And when they explain the incarnation, they're pretty close to what I've said on the incarnation, though not all figures in this debate. Um, and so the other real reason a, a pastor should care about this, if you preach the eternal submission of the Son in the Trinity, and you preach a classical view of Christology and of the atonement, there's a logical contradiction there. And a lot of people may not pick up on that, but some might. And in this generation, um, there aren't many who have picked up on that contradiction and said, well, let's change the atonement or let's change Christology. But if this contradiction persists, you know, that may not be the case forever. And eventually we might find folks advocating, well, because the son submits, our understanding of the cross is wrong. We need to rethink what's going on on the cross. And that starts to be a lot more scary and practical a lot more quickly than inseparable operations debates that might not really preach well in the pews. What do you think evangelical Trinitarianism will look like in 20, 30 years, if you could be a theological prophet? Because really, you know, in some ways, this version of eternal relation of authority and submission, it, it really came to bear in sort of the, the newer complementarian debates, last, what, 20 or 30 years of complementarian debates, maybe a little bit longer than that. Do you see, do you see that view dying out? Do you just see it morphing? Uh, do you see people, I mean, I don't think this debate definitely sparked interest in people figuring out what they think. What, what would you say are your kind of predictions about where this is going? What are you seeing in scholarship? What are you seeing in publications that, that kind of gives a, a glimpse in where this is going? So where in 2016, we saw people blasting each other on Twitter and in 30 years, they'll probably be teleporting daggers at one another <laughs> or something right. like that. Um, Hopefully not. Yeah. I'd, I'd hope where it's going is um, that we'll have, you know, some serious scholarship dedicated toward studying the Trinity. Um, and I, I've already seen this on a practical level in a number of churches. 
um, so many people were involved in this debate that in the academic world, a lot of people don't know who I am, and and that's fine. Um, I will after this podcast, this world, <laughs> this world renowned podcast. Yeah, I, I had to bribe Brandon to get on yeah, here to I'll make take myself. Payment. I'll take payment. <laughs> but I have found a number of churches that have reached out to me because of the initial article I published, and now because of this book. Um, and so I've talked with Christians who are putting together a big Trinity conference in Northern California, wanting to bring in a lot of local churches and just work through this doctrine of the Trinity. Um, I know a number of, of Baptists in Indiana that are trying to address questions around the Trinity because of this debate and bringing in a lot of the local Baptist churches of Indiana uh, to treat this issue. Um, I know of um, you know all sorts of you know just lay bloggers and Bible study leaders and uh, you name it, um, just regular Christians who because of this press um, have a real thirst for the doctrine of the Trinity, um, which is gonna help the church um, think more profoundly about the Trinity. But the benefit of that is we almost have a, a demand side drive here. If people in the church start saying, we wanna know more about the Trinity, teach us more about the Trinity. Um, I think that can be you know, an impulse for academia to try and provide more resources that can benefit the church on the Trinity. Um, because I mean, honestly, a lot of the Trinitarian thought of the seventies, for example, if you pick it up, you wouldn't wanna pass that out to your church. It's not practical, it's not readable. Um, and we started to see a turn toward readability in some of these books like Where, um, but now more folks are gonna have to present these readable books and do more scholarship. Um, and so 30 years from now, I hope we have you know, a great available library um, for any Christian to learn about inseparable operations or to learn about the Third Council of Constantinople, which most probably have never even heard of. Um, and so I think it's a very exciting opportunity um, Lord willing, that could help strengthen the church um, in the English-speaking world where this debate happened. Um, so that's my hope. You know, the darker story could be that we just sort of sweep this under the rug and it pops up again in a generation with bigger ramifications, uh, maybe even, you know, splitting churches yeah. or, you know, so I, I hope that's not where we go. I mean, I, in 2016, there were times where I was like, if the right person gets involved, if the right person picks a side, let's say in the Southern Baptist Convention, some major leader, major theologian picks a side who is kind of outside of the debate. If they, if they step in and say, I agree with this and I side with this faculty member and not this faculty member or this friend and not this friend, I was really nervous that that was going to happen at some point and we were going to see a seminary split over it or we we're going to see people go start another seminary. You know, every once in a while you see those people that they're all fed up with their denomination of the seminaries and they go start their own college somewhere else. I was real nervous that that was going to happen and I'm glad that it didn't. And I think a lot of it was because Grudem, where uh, Fred Sanders, Scott Swain, Michael Byrd, you name all the people who were involved, Liam Gallagher, most, for the most part, they were all very civil with one another. They tried to be fair to each other. You know, Matt Emerson and Luke Stamps were, were great about, they disagreed with Ware, but they allowed Ware to, pu to publish his views on their blog, just kind of saying, hey, let's have like a discussion here. And so I agree with you. I hope that there's a, I hope that there's a discussion that keeps going. And I hope that people care about what the church thinks about it. Because I think that's where, that's where ultimately, these debates often start in the academy and, and trickle down eventually. And so I hope that, yeah, I agree with you. I hope that's the case. And I hope that it's not people warring with each other. And I, and I think there were good strides even in the 2016 debate. You had, you know, Ware and Grudem, who were kind of suspicious of eternal generation, who kind of came around to it. That was you, huge. Yeah, that was huge. And you had other people who were kind of like, ah, I thought I agreed with this side, but maybe I agree with this side more. And they kind of, you know, were open to changing their mind about it. So I think that was all really encouraging. And even like I mentioned the book um, that BNH Academic put out, uh, the Trinitarian models uh, and the methods. I think that's a book that 
hopefully people can go, okay, I can look at all three views and get three really solid views here of theological method and the Trinity and work through what I think. But what I hope happens is that people want to think about it, that they don't think it was just sort of a blogger or Twitter fight and that didn't have ramifications, which I don't think that's the case, but I hope that that's, I hope that's not the case. I hope the same. Well, time will tell. Yeah. Glenn, thanks so much for, for hopping on and talking about that. Hopefully we can uh, have more conversations like this down the road. Yeah, that'd be great. Thanks for having me. 